You're listening to On The Way, a podcast for the Center for Bible Study. I'm your host, Max Botner. So if there are divisions that are taking place with, you know, respect to how people are using their own, their own gifts within the body of Christ... And it's producing chaos or, you know, something along those lines, right? Paul's trying to get them to think in such a way that they're going to lift up those who are perhaps socially inferior and be able to, you know, to use, right, their gifts in a way that is for the edification or for the good of the community. So the practical wisdom is for Paul. I'm almost any situation he's addressing, he's like seeking to get his church to develop a mindset that's chaotic or love, you know, Mm-hmm. Um, is uh, function is working towards unity. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. We've got another excellent episode for you today. My guest is Dr. Joshua Jip. He is Associate Professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, or TEDS, for those of you who know the acronym. Josh is a phenomenal New Testament scholar, wonderful guy. I've had the privilege to get to know him at conferences over the past several years. Prior to that, I read a bunch of his scholarship when I was doing my PhD studies. And so, yeah, it's really cool to develop a relationship with him and learn from him. He's written a lot of really wonderful stuff. I'll have a link to his books um, so you can go check them out. I mean, he's written a book called Christ the King, really wonderful treatment of uh, royal and messianic texts in the New Testament. He also wrote a book called The Messianic Theology of the New Testament. He's got a great short introduction to the book of Acts, um, awesome book called Saved by Faith and Hospitality. The list goes on and on and on. Uh, so you'll want to check out his books. In particular, you'll want to check out the book that we're talking about today, which is Pauline Theology as a Way of Life, a Vision of, a vision of Human Flourishing in Christ. Phenomenal book, does an excellent job of laying out like kind of the heart of Paul's vision for human flourishing. And he does it by putting Paul in conversation with other ancient philosophers, as well as some modern um, thinkers. And uh, I think you're just going to really love the book, love the conversation. So I encourage you to uh, go out and get it um, right after uh, you're done watching this episode. Um, real quick before we jump in, just want to share a couple things. One is if you haven't yet, uh, please do make sure that you're subscribed to our channel. Uh, make sure you're liking and commenting and sharing our content as much as you can. That's really helpful for us. But big thing is make sure your subscribe notifications are turned on so that you can get all our future videos um, up sent to you when they when they go up. We're constantly putting out new content. And then the other thing I want to share is just I'm really excited about this uh, this new opportunity for people to help partner with the Center for Bible Study. This YouTube channel is one part of what I do as the director for the Center for Bible Study. Um, but I, another part is I, I teach classes, uh, host lectures, put on events in the Sacramento area, but they're also um, online for people who aren't in the area and they're recorded for people to watch after the fact. So if you are um, interested in partnering with us, there's a link in the description called, it says become a supporter of the center. And any donation you make to the center, any recurring donation of whatever dollar amount you choose uh, will automatically make you a subscriber of the center. And what that means is you will get access to 
all past Center for Bible Study classes. So we run these four to six week hybrid classes in person online that are recorded. Um, you get access to all the classes, past classes. You get entrance into all future Center for Bible Study classes. And um, you get our, our our newsletter, and you get to help support um, our digital content. I think it's a pretty sweet offer, um, and uh, excited to see uh, give this opportunity to other people to um, participate with us and help us develop a sustainable model for long term accessible biblical education for everybody who um, who wants it and is interested. So please do consider supporting us. Again, the link is in the description. You can click on that, and it will take you to a page where you can make your donation of whatever dollar amount you feel is appropriate. And uh, with that, and without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into our episode with Josh Jip. Welcome everybody back to the podcast. I'm super excited today to welcome Dr. Joshua Jip. We're going to be talking about his excellent new book, Pauline Theology is a Way of Life, A Vision of Human Flourishing in Christ. Awesome book. Super excited to talk about it. Thanks for being here, Josh. Yeah, no problem. Thanks, Max. Yeah, my pleasure. So uh, just to get us started, would you share a little bit about what your journey to uh, to biblical studies looked like and maybe a bit about what motivates you to do what you do today um, as a Bible yeah, professor? Sure. sure. Um, I, I don't want to, you know, start back too much. It was a dark, stormy night and I was, you know, <laughs> but I'm going to go back to high school, actually, sure. um, and say... Uh, I was, you know, I went to a public school and kind of was not, um, you know, I was doing fine in terms of my classes, grades or whatever, but really hadn't found anything that probably I was super passionate about. And, um, it was at some point, you know, late junior high, early high school, where I kind of started taking my faith a little more seriously, started reading the Bible and the Bible, you know, just, just that really was sort of like my entry point into, um, not only a love for the the Bible and the scriptures, but also just a broader love for learning. So I was, you know, I, I turned into a 15 year old, you know, at, at one point, just really kind of all about sports. And then I, you know, kind of transitioned into a nerd at the same time, you know, where it was, you know, I was really interested in um, reading not only the Bible, but then also reading, you know, novels. And I remember I was reading, you know, War and Peace and stuff and just, so it was it it really kind of goes back to high school in terms of, you know, starting to read the Bible, um curious about the scriptures and that just, you know, opening up for me kind of like this broader love love for learning. Um uh so that's where it starts. I mean, and then the rest has kind of, you know, been a journey since then. Yeah. Um in terms of what motivates me now, um I mean, I'm certainly motivated still just by a genuine, you know, love for learning, a curiosity for, you know, how to um, make sense of these ancient texts that, mm -hmm. you know, I believe to be the word of God, but uh, also sort of then the questions that raises about the world that we live in, um, you know, uh, that that have to do with human existence. And I guess maybe kind of lead into sort of the, you know, this book, you know, what, yeah. what, what does it mean to live well? Mm -hmm. um, how do we, you know, um, how do we live in light of, you know, future death that is going, you know, coming, yeah. coming our way? Um, how do we uh, love other people? How do we thrive in the midst of adversity? You know, a lot. Of, so I'm curious about a lot of a lot of different things, a lot of different questions, um, love being able to spend time um, uh, both just sort of, you know, reading, studying, thinking, 
um, for, for its own sake. Um, and then often out of that, there's been opportunities to try to, you know, teach what I've learned, hopefully in ways that are helpful and beneficial to others. So, yeah. so I guess, you know, I'll just say one more thing. I mean, there definitely is like, I, I, I think a love of learning that I have that's sort of like, you know, for its own sake, um, yeah. uh, as a kind of like a goal or an end in itself. But, um, but then I, there's also, I think, you know, I've tried to, you know, give my life to what I think, you know, you know, truth is to be found so that what I love and what I learned, there's opportunities for me to hopefully help other people, you know, in terms of teaching. So, yep. Yeah. Well said. Love it. Um, and you, you did start to talk about the book. So the title Pauline theology is a way of life kind of raises the question that you address at the opening of the book, which is Mm. how do you even do Pauline theology? Um, Mm -hmm. and, um, so I think it'd be kind of interesting just to hear a little bit about what you say at the opening, like what does it mean to write a Pauline theology and what are you doing differently in this book than people have done in the past um, right. when, they, when they've when they done, you know, Pauline theology. I think you, you pointed to like Jimmy Dunn's book as an yep. example of a Pauline theology, which is very kind of, it's interesting, right? Because Paul is... We, we constantly place Paul back into doctrinal categories that weren't Paul's primary categories when right. he was writing. So, yeah, that whole dynamic, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And then your thoughts on what you're setting out to do in this book uh, that's yeah. a little bit different. Yeah, I'm probably a little less – I'm not super nervous about – method, uh, at the end of the day. Um, and so, so, you know, there, I, I think you could probably summarize how Pauline theology as a category or as a genre of books have been done, you know, by and large in in terms of two different approaches, you could, um, yeah, the, you know, James Dunn's the theology of the apostle Paul, there's one way of doing it that is kind of, you know, as you said, it's, it's mostly ordered around certain Christian theological categories. So what does Paul say about, God, about humanity, about sin, about the church, you know, th- these different things. And then, you know, you know, and usually, I mean, I think it's um, difficult to resist the impulse to then privilege one or two texts in Paul's letters. Now, mm-hmm. That's a really helpful book. And I don't want to sound as oh, if it's I'm a great book. It's a great book. Yeah. Critical about it. But right. You know, a book that usually takes that approach, it's rare that they're going to not use Romans kind of as the spine for how they, you know, work through. Mm-hmm. And even, you know, traditional way of thinking about Romans is, you know, mm-hmm. moving from, you know, sin and justification to sanctification, Israel right. or election, maybe not even Israel, maybe it's just election right to the church. Right. So that's one way of doing it. There's another way I think of doing it that's been done. Maybe Udo Schnella is a better, a good example of this. But a lot of people have done it this way uh, that would sort of like categorize, you know, would basically give kind of robust um, historical, exegetical, theological treatments of Paul, you know, mm-hmm. kind of letter by letter or corpus by corpus. You maybe will place, place those letters, you know, chronologically um, and then try to see in terms of, you know, what are the enduring themes within Paul? Did Paul's theology develop or something along something along those lines? So what I'm trying to do here, I don't even know. I don't care at the end of the day if, if I mean, I did use Pauline theology in the title, but I don't, it's, it's, I don't care if it can, is categorized with Pauline theologies per se, but I would say what I would, what, what I wanted to do was maybe two things, um, that are, you know, um, in, in relationship to, you know, the project of Pauline theology. 
One is I wanted to kind of take my starting point from ancient philosophy to some extent and say, well, what if we ask the question, does Paul have a supreme good, right? Or, you know, does Paul have sort of like, here's the goal of human existence. And does he, right, speak uh, um, of this, you know, in a variety of letters in similar ways, even though Paul's using different images, different metaphors um, to do so, but sort of, right, a supreme good, that kind of like can you right um, can organize the entirety of one's life. It's self-sufficient, right? Nothing of ultimate value is left out. Mm-hmm. And I think, and I don't think I'm being um, uh, unique here. I mean, I'm drawing upon a lot of other scholars in terms of saying it's. I think you can, and it's something like um, sharing in the life-giving love of God through the person of through the person of Christ um, and perfected communion with Him. So to use traditional language. Christian language, you know, which actually isn't usually privileged in Pauline theologies. We might call this, you know, uh, the beatific vision, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of Second Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians mm-hmm. 13. We might just call it sharing resurrection life with Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, all over the place in, in Paul's letters, um, Ephesians, Colossians, so on and so forth. Um, so that was one thing I wanted to do. Can we identify a supreme good for which humanity was created, the goal of human existence, and then use that as sort of an organizing framework to think mm-hmm. about some of the other theological claims that Paul makes. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, I wanted to try to wrestle with, um, I, I at least my hope was to do this in a way that Pauline theologies don't usually do. What is the point of all this the, these theological claims, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, it's a book. You can't like avoid the fact that I'm still writing. It's a book, right? Mm-hmm. But footnotes, right? It's, 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 there's a lot of thinking that goes into the book, but I wanted to try to do it in a way that took questions that were, that can't fully overcome the abstraction in other words, but trying to a little bit by, um, wrestling with questions that I think Paul himself was wrestling with. And then I think humans still are wrestling with, and basically anybody that's interested in the human condition would, Mm -hmm. I hope be interested in how do we as humans live knowing we're going to die, right? How yeah. do we as humans live knowing we want our character to look one way, but it doesn't always look that way? Mm-hmm. How do we, you know, on and on and sort of, so, so mm-hmm. those are kind of the two, two things that are maybe a little bit different in terms of this book with respect to, you know, typical Pauline theologies. Yeah, that's great. Well, I, I mean, I think that um, the idea of theology as a way of life does sort of fit more with what we typically say about Paul when we talk about him right. as like a, pa- a pastoral theologian or, you know, um, I mean, that's a, that's a typical line people use. Um, we say he's not a systematic theologian, all of these kind of things. So his letters do seem to be after a way, a particular way of life. And I think right. that's one of the advantages of your approach is you're kind of trying to, to orient everything around what the um, rhetorical and just overall aims of the documents of Paul themselves are, are after, right? Yeah. And and then to say, like you said, like, do they still have relevance for us today? Because yeah. within modern scholarship, a lot of what, what goes on is just description as best as we can know it of what Paul might have been thinking yeah. about some particular topic. Right. Um, but your your question is, yeah, how does that intersect with our reality today. Yeah. Very good. Right. Yeah. I think it's, you know, absolutely. As you said, I mean, the book is very much, you know, the last four chapters, you know, are very much engaging in synthesis organization, you know, and so you, you, you know, you're going to move, I'm moving around in terms of a lot of different letters. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, 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 and I'm making my own judgment calls to do so. But my hope is as I'm doing that, 
um, just as you said, there's a way of me, I hope, trying to honor the fact that, yeah, these are occasional letters, which basically means I'm trying to see how Paul's theological claims that he's making are ultimately in service of, you know, things that are on the ground that the churches are facing. Mm-hmm. That, they, that he either he thinks they're facing or that he, you know, wants them to think about, right, and are uh, intersecting with the very practical, mundane, ordinary you know, stuff of just human life. So, yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's great. So um, take us into your process a little bit in terms of how you construct the book and the various conversation partners. So for those who haven't had a chance to read the book yet, Josh has got like a, basically a three-way conversation going between Paul, um, ancient philosophers, and I'll let you describe some of these different, these different groups, and then um, modern positive psychologists, which uh, is probably a foreign category for many of us as well. So what was the thinking in bringing these three together? And what is it about, like, what are some distinctives we could point out about Greco-Roman philosophers and positive psychologists that might help our listeners, our audience say, oh, I can see the connections that are going to be the places of intersection with Paul, uh, these questions about what flourishing looks like, what the ultimate good looks like, that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. So the, the, I'll try to, you know, not go on forever here, but real quickly, I mean, I, uh, ancient philosophy, um, what has been for the last, whatever, 10, 15 years of interest to me, um, probably going back to at least when I started to realize um, that ancient philosophy is actually interesting. It's not like what I thought of in terms of Immanuel Kant and David Hume and Rene Descartes. I actually make some of my students read this when I teach history of New Testament interpretation. So I think it's important, but I don't always think it's quite as interesting as right picking up Epictetus or Plutarch. Yeah. Or, you know, yeah. and, and why? It's because, I mean, there, there's a lot less abstraction in the ancient philosophers between basically, you know, rational, rigorous thinking and one's way of life. And, um, right, and so much of their rigorous thinking is being done because they're wanting to actually help people live well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and they're doing so in a way that's trying to identify, right, what, it, what is the supreme good? I mean, Cicero's, you know, Cicero has this book on moral ends, on the Supreme Good um, that was has been helpful and influential. I've read it a dozen, probably a dozen times, um, where it's you start you know in ancient philosophy with a Supreme Good, try to rigorously establish that and its relationship to how humans should live, and then you know unfold the implications. So all that's basically saying ancient. You know, I'm thinking you know as I'm interested in Paul. Well, does Paul have a similar? I'm not arguing he's a Stoic or an Epicurean or Aristotelian or anything like that. But if Paul's thinking about what is the goal of human existence or what it means to live well, are at least some of the same categories and topics going to be treated? Um, And then what are going to be some of the ways, right, the ancient philosophy and Paul in conversation are going, we're going to be able, you know, they'll illuminate one another and we'll be able to see some interesting similarities. And we'll also be able to see ways in which there are some pretty, you know, like hard differences between them. Yeah, that's so that's good. the point of kind of bringing ancient yeah. philosophy in. Yeah, you want to, and you that, want to jump? And, well, I was just going to say that 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 imaginative exercise goes back to antiquity as well, right? We have yeah. um, fictitious letters between Paul and Cicero that Christians were writing, right. you know. So th- these kind yeah. of conversations um, are are super helpful and illuminating. In they kind of shed they they cast Paul's system in in greater relief, like what Paul is doing that's similar, that's different, and and so, so yeah. yeah, I think it's super helpful. So that one, yeah, that one's 
I think more obvious. And then the positive psychologist piece, that was the one that was probably, probably, I, I would imagine more foreign to most, uh, readers. Yeah. Well, more foreign to me as well. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it was, you know, um, uh, positive psychology. I think, you know, one of the things I, as I've said, I wanted to be able to do was to try to, um, say that question, the, the question, Obviously, I think most people that read this book are probably going to be Christians or interested in Christianity in some way. But um, anyone that is reading Paul, I think, can do so in a way like open-mindedly asking, okay, you know, Paul is interested in the human condition. What does it mean to be human? Um, positive psychologists are absolutely interested in that. And I want, I, want, I want people to be able to see some of those connections. So positive psychology, let me just give a minute in terms of, you know, what this is. Maybe this will be three minutes, actually. But positive psychology, basically, I think it was in the 1980s, it started as a movement that said, listen, psychology has done really well in terms of diagnosing humanity's flaws and how we can move from our flaws to being sort of like not flawed. But what we haven't done is talk about how humans actually, psychology can actually improve the human condition, how what we learn about humanity, and they're trying to do so in a way that's scientific. There's some question about how scientific it is, but in a way that's you know, empirically being investigated, how we can develop good humans, good institutions, good relationships, marriages, whatever it may be, um, instead of just kind of focusing on what's bad. And so a lot of the, you know, the earliest positive psychologists are asking and looking at a lot of questions that I think are, would intersect with Paul and ancient philosophy and really anyone that's interested in what does it mean to live well, to live a good life. And they're trying to do so. What's interesting about positive psychology, now there's a lot of Christians, uh, my understanding, most of the early pioneers of positive psychology were not Christians. And they're trying to do this in a way where they're saying they don't presuppose any sort of like normative framework. Right. Which I think is, which is interesting. That's interesting because how do you have a a telos or an ultimate end with no framework? So yeah, that's an interesting, yeah, totally. And that's one of the areas at one point where I do engage in a a little bit of critique and say, I, you know, I think you, it's either implicit or presupposed here in terms of what's good like um uh and the character strengths they one of their things they really emphasize it's really a recovery of aristotle in some ways it, it, it are are basically virtues or character strengths we live well when we you know press into our strengths so if you've ever mm-hmm. heard something like um don't worry about your weaknesses too much just really figure out what you're good at and then try to focus on that and do well at that to some extent i think that's almost a positive psychology type claim but um mm-hmm. obviously character strengths like presuppose an, um, um, some type of moral normative framework, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And so you can imagine someone that's really courageous, of course. Well, is that, is that, is that, right. That's their character strength, but is it actually good? You can only answer that, I think, based on like, well, what end is courage being employed for? Right. right, right. Um, at any rate, the positive psychologists, they have, they were, they've been really fun for me to read. Um, uh, they, uh, they're, at the end of the day, they're asking a lot of these same questions. How do we have good relationships? How do we handle adversity? They don't talk as much, at least the ones that I've read. Um, They talk about suffering. They don't talk a lot as much about death, which I think, you know, kind of is is, is a little bit of a problem. And then I'll just quickly say um, Christians more recently, it seems, or, you know, uh, have um, 
there are more now Christian positive psychologists, and I don't exactly. I'd love. I don't would love to learn a little bit more from them about how some of the fi- founders and pioneers kind of think of their work mm. as they're using positive psychology, but in a way that's. I would think the earlier earlier ones would say is not not scientific because they're presupposing sort of yeah loss. Which, yeah, no, that's fascinating. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, and it makes sense. I mean, there it's this is a modern discipline, emerging discipline that is driving at some of the same questions from antiquity, and so it kind yeah. of helps us line up with that. But it also helps us see some of the modern biases we have as well with not wanting to prescribe a framework, wanting to keep things kind of open-ended and how does that work if you don't have that? Um, So it's, yeah. I haven't thought about this way, but there is, especially in some of the earlier literature on positive psychology, a parallel with some new Testament scholarship where there's definitely an anxiety, some anxiety, I would say to say, Hey, what we're doing is science. (laughs) You Mm -hmm. know, like Mm -hmm. this is scientific, Um, you know, Yeah, yeah, no, no, that's, that's, that's funny. <laughs> well, and, you know, as, as we were talking to, it just jogged my memory. Isn't it interesting how much of um, ancient stoicism has made a, has made a return in like pop culture? Like, totally. I mean, people love like to have little snippets of like Epictetus or, you know, some other for philosopher. Sure. And it's because people, I think people are looking for some sort of grounding or security in this really yeah. chaotic world and like, okay. Uh, maybe, you know, in my hectic life, I do need to develop some disciplines and some virtues that are going to help me succeed to whatever end I think that is. But I think that we're seeing a lot of that hunger. um, And it's at a very kind of popular level. So it's not coherently thought through necessarily, but it's, it's like everywhere, all over social media and everything. It's, and and some of it, it, yeah, some of it is very pop and some of it is like people actually are trying to rehabilitate some of these ancient philosophies. That's true. Some people want to be like Stoics. Yeah, 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 way, right? yeah. So, you know, you can find a lot of these books. They're doing it with Aristotle. They're doing it with Stoicism, doing it with Epicu- Epicurus. Um, uh, and some of these books are, yeah, I think they're really, um, you know, uh, they're interesting. And I can mm-hmm. see them being persuasive to, to some extent, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Oh, just to all to say, this is a really relevant, I think, really relevant conversation. Um, yeah. So you've got two, you're kind of two opening chapters on Paul. Um, you move from transcendence, which you kind of look at as participation in the life of Christ um, and moral agency or what you call like, you know, exercising the mind of Christ. I'd mm-hmm. like to you know, hear you kind of talk through those two for us a little bit. And I was mm-hmm. also thinking about this it it did it had a little bit of an aristotelian feel to me in that you know aristotle has eudaimonia as kind of that ultimate end but most of life really actually isn't governed by that because it, it involves like your practical moral everyday reasoning so right. it's almost like for paul everything yeah is geared towards participation in christ's resurrection life but you have to then enact it or flesh it out in yeah. you know every day or whatever so anyway anything you'd like to share about that i think would be really cool so transcendence and then moral agency because i think those two chapters are really critical yeah yeah for sure so just briefly on transcendence what i mean by that what i'm talking about here is basically we're given an account right that comes to us um outside of ourselves in terms of what the meaning or the purpose of life is what human existence is all about and as as i've said before and you just indicated again 
right? It's something like perfected communion with the life-giving God, who is love in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, we experience that uh, in, in, in ways as a foretaste now, um, in, a, in a variety of ways, even as we're, you know, it's ultimately a future reality. So in Philippians 3, right, Paul is consistently saying things like, my desire is to be found in him, right? You know, I want to know him. And then I haven't yet been perfected. I'm straining ahead, you know, forth, forth to what lies ahead. There's one thing, right, that governs, you know, in verse 14, he says, and I haven't got there yet. So it's a future reality, right, that we, we experience as a foretaste, but we're still waiting for this perfected communion. So in the meantime, right, what does it mean in terms of how we live how, and how do we experience this as a reality? Um, I would say there's a, few, you know, a variety of things that Paul says, but one of them is through sort of like an ordered moral agency. Now, it's not perfected yet. But, you know, one of the ways in which, right, we are able to experience the life of Christ is through making progress in terms of our loves, our desires, our way of thinking, and our actions being congruent mm -hmm. and being aligned towards what is of ultimate good and ultimate value. And how do we know what that is? We know that basically, I think Paul says, basically through the person of Christ, so Christ, in many ways, embodies these sort of these these so, uh, virtues, which are very social and interpersonal. Mm -hmm. um, most of the virtues that Paul is after in terms of cultivating uh, in the church, I mean, Thanksgiving is really key. But most of the other ones, right, have this sort of like interpersonal, um, social way of being lived and lived out and fleshed out, and that's how mm -hmm. we sort of like are making progress towards, you know, our ult our ultimate good. Um, so yeah, let me, let me, I could keep going, but let me, let me stop there. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's really helpful. Um, so when you, when you think about like Paul's ordering of what the ultimate good is, um, he he does seem to have like an order of a hierarchy, so to speak of what should drive our lives. And, um, I don't know, I maybe have this on my mind today because I was just reading through 1 Corinthians, um, mm -hmm. you know, this morning. But, you know, you hit chapter 13 and it's love, pursue love and yeah. seek these other things, right? So he has this ordering of love kind of being like the primary thing that drives us based on um, based on the Jesus story. And then he wants people to practically like flesh it out. And this yeah. looks a lot like, um, well, he uses the verb phroneo numerous times, and yeah. we call this phronesis or a kind of moral reasoning. Um, what does that look like in practice in the communities as Paul describes it? What is a Christian phronesis? Yeah. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, you know, Philippians is the place where he kind of, you know, um, mm -hmm. and there are other places, Romans 8 as well, but... Um, you know, really gives us this language of phrenesis. But I do think like First Corinthians is maybe the best example in terms of what this looks like. So, I mean, I, I teach it and talk about it this way. Paul can't be with his churches all the time, obviously, as much as he's trying to visit them, or send Timothy, Titus, Phoebe, you know, whoever to visit them, write letters, right? He just can't be with like every single church that he's planted. So I think one of what he tries to do often is try to teach them how to think, um, uh, and then, uh, so that they will have this kind of phrenesis or practical wisdom. So for example, right in, and, and I think he's teaching, you know, first Corinthians is a great example of, you know, of where he does of one place where he does this. So if there are divisions that are taking place with, you know, respect to how people are using their own, 
their own gifts within the body of Christ, and it's producing chaos or, you know, something along those lines, right? Paul's trying to get them to think in such a way that they're going to lift up those who are perhaps socially inferior and be able to, you know, to use, right, their gifts in a way that is for the edification or for the good of the community. So the practical wisdom is for Paul, in almost any situation he's addressing, he's like seeking to get his church to develop a mindset that's canonic or love, you know, Mm-hmm. Um, is uh, function is working towards unity, right? I think so often Paul doesn't want to take sides on certain issues, um, uh, lest it appear as if he sort of validates one group against the other. And but when he does do that, right, he he does so in a way that it's usually the socially inferior that he takes the mm-hmm. side of. Ultimately, mm-hmm. because I think he wants, you know, the, the, he thinks Christ is our peace, and so the church needs to be a. Uh, a community that is unified. So love, unity, um, you know, uh, uh, there's a, what was the third one I was going to say? Well, it's probably an offshoot of both of those love and unity, but in first Corinthians, obviously oikotome or oikotomeo edification, Mm -hmm. edification, it's lifting up the entire group or the entire community. What does that go back to? It goes back to, right. The person of Christ who was in the form of God didn't consider Equality would got something to be used for his own advantage. It goes back to the fact that Paul says Christ is the host of the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, not the wealthy Corinthians. You know, it goes mm-hmm. back to the example of Christ, who um, you know Paul says in Romans fifteen, right, has extended hospitality to us and to brought us into uh, uh, the family of God. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's great. No, super helpful. Would would it be fair to say, in a, in a sense? Paul's letters are kind of like didactic exercises in trying to train people to to reason in this way. So we yeah. we sometimes, you know, think about the, the Christian faith primarily in terms of like uh, a set of doctrine or, yeah. you know, things we all ascribe to. And obviously belief and, and all that's really important. Um, Paul's understanding of the Jesus story frames up everything, but... What his letters are really driving after is tr- teaching people to live this way, training people Absolutely. to to reason in a particular way, um, like yeah. having a, G- a Jesus lens, right, for, for everything yeah. that they see. Yeah. Uh, I'm just having this crazy memory of back when I was, you know, I was at the, a, a church. This was a while ago, so hopefully nobody, you know, I don't think anyone could trace this out. And there was this, you know, meeting afterwards and uh, I think our pastor must have been preaching on is- you know, issues for a while that had to do with sort of like us loving the community or something like that. And this guy stood up. He was known for being a little bit of a troublemaker and sort of like accused the, the pastoral staff of heresy. And he was like, I can't even believe it. But they are talking about Christianity basically as if it's like a way of life. And I was like, just sort of. Yeah. He's called that Harris, you know. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So, I, I, it was, I, I think most people didn't ag- agree with him, but it was, you know, it's like, no, I mean, it, it is, you know, all of, I mean, the theology is important, right? Paul's constantly, you know, invoking theological claims. We've got creeds and confessions in his right. letters. We've got poems and hymns and songs, you know, that he's crafted. There's so much great theology. Um, but for Paul, I don't think he's ever really that interested in just sort of like, you know, giving a rigorous articulation of it for its own sake. 
right. it's all about right training people to live a certain type of life. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I'm just yeah saying, yeah no that's absolutely. great no that's a, that's a good anecdote. I mean, in, in some ways, I think that that gentleman maybe just said the quiet part out loud because I think a lot of our our uh, our theological institutions in the past have sort of operated with that mentality um, for yeah. for better or probably for worse. But totally yeah. Um, yeah, so there's so many things I want to talk about in the book, but one one other part that I really want to hit on because I'd love to hear your thoughts on this is so Paul t- Paul's got this vision for the corporate body of Christ, and within that corporate body or that Christ identity, he has he basically locates various different social identities, um, mm. diverse as you point out in the book, right. and so yeah, I, I'd first like to just hear if you wouldn't mind just kind of articulating for us. How does Paul do that? What's his strategy? And then maybe we can transition to talking about the implications for for today a little bit. Right, right. Um, Right. So I I guess, you know, most simply stated, I would say, you know, where Paul is radical, powerful, and in my view, is that basically, you know, I teach it in this way often, that sort of like, you know, those who are in Christ and those who have the spirit of Christ basically have everything that God has to give them because God has given them God's self. So there's really no, like, that's the, there, there is a robust vision then of like, at least within the church of equality mm-hmm. um, uh, that I think Paul is, you know, try, trying to work out. And so in his mission, right, you see people, you see slaves and free, you see women, you see men, you see, you know, you see, different socioeconomic standings. You see Jews and Gentiles. You see, um, and, and I think if I understand, you know, if I'm understanding Paul rightly, you know, I mean, it's those perhaps baptismal formulas in Galatians 3 and 1 Corinthians 12 and Colossians 3 are, you know, when you get clothed with Christ and Christ dwells in you, whatever your social identity is, you now are sort of like an equal, mem- you know, member in the church. You can worship regardless of your social status and you can use your gifts, right, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of whatever that social identity may, may happen to be. So within ecclesia space, within the church, you know, within what, it, you know, in terms of the kinds of communities that Paul's establishing, um, I think there's that. Mm-hmm. I think then that that, and I, I think that's, I don't know, if maybe, I don't as New Testament scholars, right, we're trained not to make too many statements about that being radical. But I think, yeah. like, it's a pretty powerful revolutionary thing that Paul's trying to develop, at least in the church. Now where Paul gets criticized and there's a lot of questions, you know, in terms of, um, uh, in terms of what I'm saying is, well, what does this mean for broader society? You know, mm-hmm. um, did right. And, and, and Paul, um, obviously it didn't seem as if he was trying to, you know, engage in sort of like a worldwide, um, revolution against the Roman empire that would sort of like conform, you know, the rest of the world to, you know, mm-hmm. to the church. And mm-hmm. was he, so was he an abolitionist or not? Right. Well, mm-hmm. and if you're, and, and, and if I say, well, within the church, he was, well, was that enough? Right. Mm-hmm. So that's where mm-hmm. I think some of it, right. Was he trying to transform culture in terms of, you know, mm-hmm. being a proto-feminist? Um, right. There, right. there are, obviously he was read in ways that were, you know, sort of revolutionary in ways that were very status quo, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you can you have you have statement of- you have statements in Paul that you can read in both of those veins, right? Both those directions. Exactly. Yeah. For yeah. sure. And and I think a lot of the early church did, you know, mm-hmm. um in, in ways that 
at times, you know, as much as I might be tempted to um, to lift up certain texts, um, you know, I'm, I have to be honest and say, well, there are these other texts for, in the early church where mm-hmm. they're giving a reading of Paul, and then we have to have a conversation about which reading is better, or maybe even enter into some kind of like political theology in terms of, you know, okay, Paul was trying to do this, and his emphasis was on the church. Mm-hmm. When we, as 21st century you know, North Americans or whatever we are in this context. Now we have these texts. How can we use them? Should we use them? You know, when it comes to more modern concerns that have to do with mm-hmm. legislation today. So mm-hmm. I don't know if so, I get what you were. Yeah, asking. yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. I'd like to, let's drill down in a couple of those things. Cause so when Paul says, um, you know, things like in first Corinthians seven, kind of the, the remain as you are principle, right. right. Or don't change over that that can be understood in a variety of ways. Like um, you could say, well, remain as you are, meaning we're not going to change certain structures and systems that are, are bad. Right. But remain Mm -hmm. as you are might also be driven by Paul's sense of, Hey, you all already have all you need in Christ. And that might be the focal point of asserting that people don't need to shift their social identity to have the full value that they already have in Christ. So those would be, I mean, depending on what's driving Paul there, the message we might derive from it, even if we say it's not, it's not everything um, that could be, you know, significant. So what do you think about like, what's, what's animating that, that kind of attitude that Paul has as, you know, remain as you are. Yeah. I, I, I think it is, again, it's, 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 hard for a lot of us, I think, to think this way, but I think for Paul, the emphasis he has is really primarily within the church. And so he's saying, you don't need to change your social identity in order to be able to worship in the Christ assembly, use your spiritual gifts. And so this sort of thing that would say, like, I need to move up in ter- or that, you know, in terms of my social, social status, or, or whatever it may be, he's saying you have all you need within the church, right? Philemon's a brother, Onesimus is a brother. Um, uh, so I think that tends to be, it, that's my reading at least. And I think Paul tends to think um, the world is this present evil age. The world is still, even as we have a foretaste of Christ, First Corinthians 15, his enthronement, res, you know, resurrection reign. Um, there's a sense in which the world is still like going to hell. And it's the world and it's Mm -hmm. governed by, you know, it's not, it's not governed yet as it should be by Christ. And so I'm not sure. And so in that regard, I tend to think of Paul as a little bit pessimistic with respect to trying to change. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yep. Well, and that's a typical historical explanation we give for why he didn't do X, Y, or Z is it wasn't really his primary focus missionally. Um, also, I mean, if you believe Jesus is returning in your lifetime, that might have an effect on, you know, your long-term political strategy. Right. Um, but, but yeah, just, um, you know, certain things maybe weren't possible for Paul. And I think we maybe Mm -hmm. could even admit that certain things weren't on his hermeneutical horizon and, um, they may be on ours now. And so if we're thinking about how Paul speaks to us today, or how the spirit speaks through Paul's letters to us right. today. Right. That's when the question comes in, how, yeah. what is a, what is a good use of Paul's writings today look like? Because right. we do live in a world that is very much 
um, divided based on various social identities. And some mm-hmm. of that's actually a good thing in, insofar as people who have typically been underrepresented or marginalized, we're starting to get more of a, a sense corporately of how that's taken place and in what ways and the importance of social location and identity. At, at, at the same time, some of these identities are not were not on the horizon of Paul when he was writing, so he couldn't have addressed right. th- th- those issues directly. You know, thinking in particular about uh, racial categories we work with today. Uh, certainly, right. there was racialization in the ancient world, but uh, yeah. not the same categories we have today. Likewise, they talk about sex and gender in the ancient world, but not exactly the categories we have today. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, for example, so what is it? Um, do you have some sort of like larger? Uh, interpretive framework that guides your thinking when you're thinking about what is a good reading of Paul, a Paul look like today, right? Like yeah. uh, one way I think about it, this may be a little bit naive, but um, it's, it's been helpful to me since seminary. Does Paul have kind of like a, an underlying <laughs> grammar that can get um, applied and rooted um, that uh, maybe, maybe requires even some improvisation or, Mm-hmm. adaptation from Paul's writing per se, just the, what it actually says. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. It's a tough, but really good question. I think there are two, two things that come to mind. One would be, even if Paul's primary interest is informing, um, you know, churches, ecclesias, little communities that are living equality in Christ with one another, well, if if one is like living out of that basically and saying like this is this is God's reality here, then I think those types of values are you're, you know at, at minimum you're going to be right you're going to be so committed to those hopefully within the church, but you're also going to be formed I hoped and shaped by them in a, such a way that some of those values are going to be right ways that you're going to think about well how do I I guess this is my second point. The, how do I do good to everyone, which is a Pauline exhortation that he frequently gives, right? Mm-hmm. It's even if Paul thinks that the world is going to hell or it's this present evil age, right? He is frequently saying things like, you know, love one another and 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 do good to all people, right? And, and, and um, don't respond in ways that are antagonistic. Look for ways in order, you know, if your enemy hates you, look for ways to extend hospitality to, the, to them, Romans 12, so, you know, 2000 years removed, you know, from from those claims. I mean, I would say that's those are some of the exhortations that we see Paul give that come from I think he's a faithful disciple of Jesus who taught those he look, you know, those sorts of things obviously as well. I love your enemies, do good to all. Um, but what, and then what it looks like, obviously, yeah, improvisation is, is, is one way of thinking about it. Certain values that we're going to operate with as we seek to be people who want to see the common good and, um, you know, flourishing and well-being of all people wanting to work perhaps missionally within the larger structures of society, uh, which is sort of how I understand Romans 13, as opposed to, you know, being separatists. Those are some of at least the values yeah. Um, and, and, and to be honest, I'm not going to just, I'm probably, you know, as I'm participating sort of in the public sphere, I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to be shaped in a certain way by these texts, probably not going to just be, you know, quoting Pauline theology or ver- Bible verses as I'm giving, you know, my sort of reasons for why I might think, you know, one proposal for the common good or, you know, something is better than another. Yeah, that's great. 
What do you, th- uh, you, you quote, uh, I just want to bring this quote up because I've used it before because I agree with it, um, even though it needs to be unpacked. But you quote uh, Luke Timothy Johnson, uh, whom I you know greatly respect, love his scholarship, um, that uh, he, he argues that, in fact, Paul is the most liberative um, voice in oh, the right. canon. And you, yep. you quote that approvingly. Um, what, 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 does he, what does he mean by that? And what, yeah. do we, what, what, what do you mean by that in, in quoting right, him? Right, right. I mean, it's, you know, it, to some extent, it, maybe it's hyperbolic. Maybe it's not for Luke, actually, in terms of saying that. But, I, you know, it, it, it's definitely got the, you know, Lucan, and my, I mean, Luke and Timothy Johnson sort of bravado in terms of making that claim. Yeah. And yeah. he's making that claim in part because people love to, you know, whip Paul, right? Right, 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 uh, right, right. He, he's, he's the flaw and the, re, you, know, everything, every, you know, everything that's bad about society basically came, you know, into the world through Paul. Right. right. So, so to some extent, I think he's probably kind of like saying, oh, come on. Um, we, we don't read Seneca this way. We don't read, you know, sort of like we're not any, anyway, even though almost every ancient says things that are challenging, problematic mm-hmm. and offensive. Um, but I think, yeah, like what other what other person, you know, says something like Paul says in First Corinthians 7, 4, um, that it's not just the husband that has control over his wife's body. The wife has control over the husband's body, right? In other words, he's he's taking something that I think people would presume, right, that the husband is privileged, you know, and sort of like has a certain relationship with respect to the wife um, and, and, and is sort of like saying, okay, fine, there's that. But also, and then it's like there, there's this sort of like mutual, you know, in terms of they both have the sort of mm-hmm. like, if you want to use language of power, there's some form of, you know, mutuality in that regard. And I think liberative in the sense, in terms of what I was saying before, um, while Paul wasn't radical and trying to transform all of society, I do think he was, um, you know, liberative, radical in terms of um, wanting to treat all people, whatever their social identities were, not in a way that was colorblind, but sort of acknowledged their differences but also wanted the seemingly social inferior, you know, in first Corinthians to be able to use their spiritual gifts, right. And participate in the same way. He wanted those that were hungry when they were coming to the Lord's supper. He wanted the powerful to wait, right. Or to at least make sure that they were feeding them and have it, you know, so in the, in so many different examples that at least within the church, um, Paul was not sort of saying like, let's do theology entirely, like the primary category are your social identities. And then let's think about how we do everything in this regard. So is Paul thinking about the difference between Jew, Gentile? Yes. Is he thinking about the difference between male, female, all of these? Yes. They're not like eradicated, but they aren't really sort of like the primary building blocks for how people should relate to one another in the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's what Luke means. That's what I'm, you know, that's what I'm trying yeah, to yeah, draw. Yeah, yeah, No, I like, I love that. And uh, the way I've tried to articulate it with students, I don't know if this works, but um, basically the, the in Christ space is the place where, the place where we're invited to bring all of our various social identities and, mm-hmm. and come learn more through community with others about what those identities entail. Um, yeah. And yep. and it's a kind of a it it could possibly be you know to 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 take Willie Jennings line if theology if theological education was about belonging um, then it could be this beautiful space of exploring our various identities together in totally. Christ. Um, I and, just I actually just gave a lecture yesterday where I quoted some I mean Willie Jennings uh, yeah. along those lines. Yeah, I mean where it's like you know theological educators need to you know be people 
that are thinking about how do we create spaces where we find belonging and people are able to come and learn from each other. You're right. They're actually able to come, bring who they are and, and, and are learning with one another because the, you know, the operant sort of like virtue that, you know, surrounding all of that is love, not right. Independence or autonomy or power or something along those lines. Yeah. That's so good. So good. Can I ask you one more question before we, For sure, before yeah. we cut? Okay. Yeah. So um, I know, I know we share this interest in uh, the Paul within Judaism school, um, mm. you know, and, and you're actually farther along than me. I've seen you on panels and stuff, giving papers within these seminars, but um, I had Matt. So I had Matt Thiessen on um, a couple of episodes ago to talk about his new book, a Jewish Paul. And within the, within your book, you know, obviously, again, this is not an issue that you're setting out to address in your book, but you do, um, you know, quote favorably some Paul within Judaism stuff, pointing out like, hey, you know, especially at the opening of Romans, this really looks like um, kind of a, a description of the Gentile world from a Jewish perspective and other things like that. And this has been, I guess I'm asking this question because it kind of gets at something that I've just sort of been chewing on as I've been mostly an observer in these conversations for the last few years at conferences. Mm -hmm. um, if we situate Paul in the framework that you've done with a kind of ordering of like, what's the highest good or what's the highest thing that Paul's driving after? I wonder what that framework does to um, the Paul within Judaism conversation in, in this respect, right? So if Paul has like a definite, uh, Gentile problem out there that he's trying to, to solve it. And also a Jewish problem, as Matt said. I mean, different people have different ideas about how that works out. But for Matt, yeah, it's, it's he clear. Use that language, uh, he, Jewish he actually, problem. He, he did at the end, which I thought was really helpful. He's like, I think wow. he has a Jewish problem as well. Um, That's amazing. It, I, I, think I've, I think I've been pretty influential on Matt in this regard. A, I mean, because he said, I you just, know, Paul, Paul, Paul says that um, – that, uh, you know, they, they haven't yet acknowledged the Messiah, Jews who yeah, are not in Jesus. Right, and, right. And, and he's like, that's the problem, which yeah. perfect. Um, in fact, yeah. he even he, he even helpfully uh, paraphrased E.P. Sanders, right? What's the problem with Judaism? It's not Christianity. And Matt said what he basically meant was, what's the problem with, uh, with Judaism? They don't believe in Jesus, <laughs> right? The Messiah. Yeah. Like, so it's that that kind of yeah. uh, deal. But but even with even in that framework, like when we're focused on gentiles as being so so dead that they can't take on law they need you know mm -hmm. this pneumatic restoration it seems to me like at the end of the day paul's still driving at that ultimate eschatological righteousness so if we go to like yeah. philippians yep. 3 right i guess i'm just wondering and i'd love to hear your thoughts on this and i'm kind of rambling but if ultimately all human beings jew or gentile um are aimed at the same eschatological righteousness and yeah whatever um, advantages we had yeah. prior to the coming of Christ, right? Even if the Jews are, let's say, way ahead in the race than the Gentiles, yeah. which I'm sure Paul believed that. Um, yeah. it, it, once, the, once Christ comes and the fullness comes, um, is it still appro like, appropriate to think that a Gentile problem would have been the, the, like Paul would have seen Gentiles as so radically different with respect to, eschatological righteousness and the way that you get there, which is pneumatic, mm -hmm. um, indwelling. Um, yeah. does yeah. that make sense? I think I, I mean, I've struggled and wrestled with some of this too. And, um, 
uh, Matt Thiessen and Rafael Rodriguez um, edited this fortress book yeah, a few years yeah. ago on the self-styled interlocutor in Romans 2. And I was like one of the only maybe per- people, I, I think I wrote the like a response essay in the one of the chapters. I think I was one of the only people that wasn't sort of commissioned to like, okay, you're a Paul within Judaism person. Here's your topic. It was sort of a outside response. And yeah, my, um, first of all, I would really, Matt and I would really like to, I think together create some type of controversy. So I'd really love to get some sort of like negative soundbite about him in here. Like super <laughs> uh, uh, either about him as a, per- it could be about anything about, but yeah, anyway, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, maybe we're, we're going to come up with something at SBL, um, where, where, you know, we'll, we'll, it, we'll create some controversy, but your real question, it's um, good for, it's good for book sales. I hear you got to create the Matt, controversy. Honestly, Matt's always the one that's like, Hey, Jim, we really need to like create some controversy here. <laughs> like to drum up our book yeah. sales. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. I know. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think basically what you said, I'm, you know, as you said, it like, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm in, you know, agreement with that. There is, um, the Jew and Gentile are different. And yeah. for Paul, I think you can say Jews are better than Gentiles. Yeah. Right. Why? Well, the God of Israel, right. Has, is, is their God has worked through their history. Right. Um, he, you know, the rest of the nations had these, had, had these other gods that sort of were over them, but God of the, right, the true God, Yahweh, you know, basically is the one who lo- loves Israel and has worked with Israel. And so all of their history, right. Is a history that is one that's revelatory, that's good, that, you know, and so in, in this regard, like Jew is better than Gentile, like it, mm-hmm. there, and, and I think, you know, um, as I'm saying this in a very summary sort of way, um, you know, there is, this is a really helpful, helpful, you know, thing that a lot of scholars within Paul within Judaism or whatever, right, have, have drawn our attention to. I often mm-hmm. say to my students, you know, um, what does Paul say when he says, you know, what is the benefit of circumcision? What's the advantage of the Jew? Much right? in our, every way, yeah. Our, our theology, a lot of our theologies are, are, are going to sort of say nothing. Right. There's or a, even a disadvantage or, maybe from some yeah, supersession. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Right. Um, so as John Gager had said, like, there are these quote unquote, we call them pro Israel statements or whatever, you know, whether it's, you know, Romans three, one, or it's Romans seven, 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 14, 12 through 14 is the law bad. No, it's spiritual. It's holy. It's good. All of these Romans nine, four through five, the Messiah, according to the flesh mm-hmm. came through mm-hmm. all of these covenantal privileges. So mm-hmm. there's so many things I think that the Paul and Judaism people have, have helped say, Hey, you have to take this seriously. Yeah. That said, um, I think, you know, maybe my sort of trite way of saying it is, well, the Torah never resurrected anybody. The Torah never gave anybody life, right? The, mm-hmm. the full, fullness of life, according to Paul, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, so for Paul, there actually is, I would say, a, a Gentile problem. Matt's right. You know, Gentiles need to get into the family of Abraham, right? Mm-hmm. And they do throw, do so, however, not through circumcision, but through having the spirit of Christ. I think that's a pretty clear reading of Galatians. Um, but, um, right, kind of, I think, as you were saying, whether you call it, say, the law couldn't resurrect anyone, or there's eschatological life or righteousness that Jew and Gentile need, right? Basically, there is, you know, I think Paul, there is room for looking at sort of le- from Paul, what is the human problem, right? Mm-hmm. What is, and it's death, right? Mm-hmm. It's mortality. It's mm-hmm. right. It's, it's, um, and, and there, for Paul, there is one way to solve that. Right. Mm-hmm. 
So the Gentiles and Jews, Romans 9, may be going, you know, in, in a race and some don't even know they're in the race or maybe some are going the wrong way. But both the Jews and the Gentiles, what, they're, what they need, right, is that eschatological righteousness, right, that Paul basically unpacks in a surprising way with Romans 10, 9 through 10 uh, mm -hmm. in terms of confessing Jesus as Lord and Messiah, believing he's been raised from the dead. Um, so I hope that does that, I hope that answers. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I just thought it'd be fun to riff on it a little bit, uh, especially yeah. cause we just had Matt on here and it was super fun. And I kind of was hoping to get into that with him a little bit at the end, but we, 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 it was a great conversation and he, and he said, you know, he, he gave such a great, uh, great answers on all aspects of his book. Yeah. And, and also I, you know, I didn't want to, you know, really push it too much just because, like the book was designed to introduce people to Paul within Judaism, not mm -hmm. for people to argue, you know, on all these fronts. And yeah, so uh, right, this right. is something that we'll, we'll continue on in the conversation. Totally. And, uh, I, in, and, in, and that in that essay that I was mentioning where I, you know, I, I said, I think there needs to be more conversations, you know, that take place between Paul within Judaism scholars who, as I just described, and, you know, people that think of themselves as apocalyptic scholars, um, right, that, that are tending to emphasize a little bit more sort of um, uh, some of the stuff I was saying in terms of... Like the kind of, of radical newness type thing? or Yeah, at least in the sense that there is, you know, there is resurrection life, right, that mm -hmm. comes only through Christ. And so all humans, to some extent, are put in a similar position. But I think, I think that basically just annoyed everybody. You know, I think... <laughs> I, the people that read it, at least there is one prominent apocalyptic interpreter was like, did you write that just to annoy me? You know, sort of like, and, and then I, and then, so, you know, I, I, in other words, I think they, most of the time they'd go their separate ways at SBL crowds. Yeah. They're happy not to talk to each other, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. Or, when they do, or when they do, it's a lot of like scoring of points against each other. I haven't seen, I'm still waiting for like a fun, enjoyable conversation between these, you know. Oh yeah. too. SBL schools, yeah. There's no other um, area of New Testament scholarship that is as tribal as Pauline <laughs> studies. It's so wild. There, there, so much of it is just ad. I mean, yeah. I, I've learned a lot from all of. I, I, I yeah, like a yeah. lot of them, right? Yeah, like, yeah. I, I've learned a lot from. I mean, you know, right over here is Paula Fredrickson and Matt Thiessen. Um, You know, Lou. Yeah. We're talking about Lou Martin in one of my classes next week. But yeah. I do, I do definitely wish, wish there, it was a little less tribal. Yeah. Yeah. I think for if sure. we're really about sort of like a free exchange of ideas, it'd be nice to see a ge new generation that it's able to uh, talk to each other yeah. a little bit better than what's gone yeah. on in the past, which is why, yeah. again, I want to say, you know, how much I'm an anti-Matt Thiessen. Type uh, of <laughs> Matt, you heard it here. It's uh... <laughs> That's so funny. Well, man, thank you so much, Josh. Really appreciate your time. The book is awesome, everybody. Pauline Theology is a Way of Life. Definitely get it. Uh, not only would it be just a great read if you're you know, thinking about a, a textbook for a, Pauline, a Paul Studies class, this would work really, really well um, in so many different ways. So, And I hope pastors get their hands on it, uh, people in church. This is just, It's just a phenomenal book. So thanks, Josh. Appreciate your scholarship yeah. and uh, appreciate oh, thanks, you taking Max. the time. It was really yeah. fun. Thanks for reading the book. Thanks for taking the time to have me on and finding it to be worthwhile. It was a lot of fun to chat with you. Yeah, no, for sure. 
just finished another episode of On The Way. Thanks so much for listening to us. We so appreciate it. If you haven't already, make sure that you are following or subscribed to the podcast so that you get the release of each new episode. And we'd very much appreciate if you would write us or rate us on whichever podcast platform you use. That would be awesome. The biggest encouragement I have is for you to consider joining our Facebook group if you haven't already. Link is posted in the episode description. This is a community for all people to just come together, encourage one another in our faith, share resources, and continue on this journey together. Thanks all. We love you.